Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. The Godfather is great, but is it cake edition? It's Wednesday, April 6th, 2022. On today's show, The Godfather, I mean, what can you say about it? It's now 50 years old. It's Coppola's absolute masterpiece, surely one of the most iconic and influential American movies of all time. In every respect, we're going to get into it. We'll assess the legacy of a giant almost without rival. And then, yeah, but is it cake? At the top of Netflix rankings is a wonderfully inane, I guess wonderfully inane. I I guess I want to shade that word a little bit as we discuss it. Let's just say inane competition show no one respects and everyone loves. And finally, did Dua Lipa plagiarize a 2017 song for her number one hit, Levitating, or maybe a 1979 song, or was it a 1980 song? We discussed the many vagaries of music plagiarism with Jeremy Oros, a professor of uh, music theory at the University of Memphis. We're joined today by Allegra Frank, senior editor at Slate. Allegra, welcome back to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's awesome to have you back. And of course, Dana Stevens, who's the film critic for Slate and the author of Cameraman, the book with a like TARDIS-like subtitle that changes and morphs and grows <laughs> and has, fits the entire 20th century within it. And I'll never learn it. But it's, Dana, once again, congrats. It's such a good book and it has legs and that commercial legs. And that's just a tremendous uh, victory. Thank you, Steve. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it because speaking of legs, I just wanted to let listeners know this week, any listeners we have that are in the D.C. area or in the Williamsburg, Virginia area, I'm doing book signings, book events in both of those places this weekend. So if you are interested in coming to a D.C. or Williamsburg, V.A. book event, you can go on my Twitter at The High Sign or you can write us at the show and I'll let you know all the details. Ah, that's terrific. Uh, definitely check it out. All right. We, we ready? Yeah, let's go. What is juicier than The Godfather at 50? I mean, this one is just, you know, to mix metaphors, teed up for this show. I can't wait. Okay, so I I began watching it and immediately, like, uh, the reverie overwhelmed me uh, with the theme music over a black screen. I didn't even need an image to be drawn back into this world. Immediately, associations, ramifications, resonances. uh, It's both deep inside you, that movie, and everywhere in the culture at once. There's... Um, no way to rewatch this movie clean, as it were. I mean, even to watch it for the first time is to rewatch it. You've already experienced it if you've never actually seen it. It's just in the air. I mean, the most obvious immediate touchstone is The Sopranos. Uh, but I mean, it's just it's ludicrous to try to delimit it in that way. I've forgotten the title card itself is a logo. 
it's etched somewhere in my unconscious mind. Anyway, Paramount re-released this movie, The Godfather, for its 50th anniversary in late February, and the old warhorse came through. It blew away the competition on a per-theater basis. Uh, one fact I'd like to get to uh, in the conversation, we forget uh, this because of Jaws and Star Wars, but The Godfather was, in, in its way, was the very first blockbuster. It kind of straddled the auteur era of the great director having artistic control over a significantly large budget. But it was also, in a way, the first, I mean, we assign this to Jaws, but in a way it was the first blockbuster. It quickly became the highest grossing movie of all time. There is so much to say. We're going to get to what we can. I should shut myself up and why don't we listen to a clip? Um, This is going to be the iconic opening scene of the movie. Uh, A local undertaker is asking Vito Corleone, Don Corleone, uh, to murder two men who've assaulted his daughter. The Godfather holds out on him in ways that are quite interesting and, in my estimation, set up the entire film. Let's listen. We've known each other many years, but this is the first time you ever came to me for counsel for help. I can't remember the last time that you invited me to your house for a cup of coffee. Even though my wife is godmother to your only child. But let's be frank, you yeah. You never wanted my friendship, and uh, you were afraid to be in my debt. I didn't want to get into trouble. I understand. You found paradise in America. Had a good trade, made a good living. Police protected you, and there were courts of law. You didn't need a friend like me. But, uh... Now you come to me and you say, Don Corleone, give me justice. But you don't ask with respect. You don't offer friendship. You don't even think to call me Godfather. Dana, let me let me start with you. I mean, this is just a wildly original way to start a movie. Um, even as he pans out, even as we see Brando, uh, Corleone, we're in the depths of some remarkable shadows, the richness of the palette. There's a little pussycat on the lap of Don Corleone that he's playing with. Ordinarily, never get on stage with animals or little children, Dana, they upstage you. That's an old actor saw. But here, it works so perfectly. It's such a daring choice. Oh my God. I mean, I could scarcely get through the movie. I had to pause it and take copious notes. You're gonna have to shut me and stop my mouth. (laughs) I'm gonna be done. This is it. You talk. Tell me, tell me about rewatching The Godfather at fifty. I mean, and I feel like in a way we should start with Allegra because she just watched the movie for the first time, which is you know such a it's an unusual circumstance to come across because, like you say, Steve, <laughs> The Godfather is so it's just it's in, it's almost like the veining inside a rock or something. You know, it's so, so inside of oh, popular lovely. culture lovely. and yeah. and and in representations of gangsters that when I was watching it, actually, I felt a little bit the opposite, Steve. I felt like. I was so familiar with this movie that I had trouble getting oh, emotionally involved and was while be. I was admiring it aesthetically the entire time. And as you're saying, that Gordon Willis cinematography, which in the restoration I was watching, looks so rich and so beautiful. But every scene seemed to be some sort of, you know, hyper-quoted, hyper-parodied. I know. You know, I mean, it was just sort of like it, it moved so quickly also for a three-hour movie. Something that really, really struck me. And that is in part, I think, because it moves from one kind of gorgeous, grand set piece that sort of stands on its on its own as a as a 
movie moment to the next, right? And so it sort of seemed like that was it. That was the whole movie, even though it lasted almost three hours. And as we've recently discussed on the show, that is a long time to sit and focus on a movie. But no, I was I was utterly transfixed. But I would have to say that I was transfixed more by the uh, the artistic spectacle than perhaps the, the emotional journey the movie took me on. And that's why I want to hear from Allegra, who was perceiving it for the first time and not kind of necessarily factoring in all the history of her own viewings as she as she watched. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I think I had a similar experience to you, albeit obviously this was my first and so far only experience in that it was hard for me to get emotionally invested because it was sort of like, I know this scene. I remember this parody of the scene. Like watching the first scene, which was amazing to look at. Like, I agree. Artistically, it was far more exciting and intriguing for me than story-wise. But watching the first scene, I'm embarrassed but also amused to say, like, I was like, oh, I remember this from Rugrats in Paris. (laughs) 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 Which is, like, the worst kind of thing to be, like, reminiscing excitedly about. But I was like, yeah, Chucky was the Bob father in that. I mean, Allegra, I gotta say you never disappoint. I love that you're our sort of resident ovum or something like you're this little <laughs> egg that like is pre-experiential in some sense and we get to show you things and um on yeah. the other hand of course you're the age where you're post streaming and post internet so you're also a repository for all of human culture in some sense so you sort of know nothing and everything at the same time it's just incredibly <laughs> refreshing Thank you. Uh, I will be sharing this with my parents. They'll be so excited. Someone appreciates this. Um, And I was pleasantly surprised, though, that there were parts that I really was unfamiliar with, like the quite gorgeous and complicated sort of middle segment where Michael is uh, sentenced to go to Sicily for his own protection um, I, I wasn't aware that there would be this extended portion of the film that takes place in Italy and in Italian with some unsubtitled Italian. So that was really interesting to me. There were parts like that that I was not so familiar with that I could get more interested in and involved with and really laser focus on. But other times I was kind of just like, you know, in my Rugrats in Paris mode of thinking about the references. Yeah, that Sicily segment in the middle, which is almost this pastoral island in the middle of the movie that looks and feels and sounds completely different, and as you say, is in a different language, really struck me this time because of the the shift in tone. It's almost mm-hmm. like a European movie, yes. a European short film that has been wedged into yeah. the middle of this much um, darker, just literally physically darker, you know, warm, velvety red world of The Godfather becomes, you know, briefly this kind of golden sunlit world of almost a fantasy of, of Italy. And the European influence that Coppola is channeling there is really reinforced also by the presence of Franco Chitti. Do you recognize, Steve? There's an actor who was always in Pasolini movies who plays sort of one of the two henchmen, the henchman who, is, who does not betray Michael. Um, and whenever I see him, I'm just, I'm back in the world of Pasolini. And it oh, makes you think yeah. about how Coppola was able to bring something to the gangster movie that it had never had before, which was Italianness. you know? <laughs> yeah. And apparently when this movie came out, you know, the, the Italian community, I'm not going to say the mobster community, although it did become, you know, a touchstone for people involved in gangster activities. But just as a kind of a family drama and a portrait of what it was like to live in a big immigrant Italian family, I think people really responded to it. And that was a part of what felt so Deeply. so new and novel about it at the time. And I will say that in a, in a way, I've had kind of a reverse effect, at least from Allegro, which is that 
I, the movie surprised me over and over and over again, just starting with that first scene. I don't think I remembered it began with a long uh, sort of zoom out monologue, a, a daring, daring way to open a movie. And then, and then the importance of that scene had never hit me before, which is that he's come to Don Corleone asking if he can pay him for violence, give him money in exchange for violence. And um, the man who's asking him this, the undertaker, we're told is a successful businessman. He's the immigrant story that we, the audience, think we admire. And Coppola's saying, no, you're now in the logic within the logic of this movie, which is the logic of Don Corleone, this encompassing logic by which that man is a petty man who sought money within a transactional world of an American capitalist economy. And Corleone's this holdout, right? He thinks of himself as as a man of kind of courtly honor, to whom you pay a certain kind of obeisance, um, and he exists in an honor economy and not in a money and a tra- transactional one. But he also immediately begins to show you: you do not, you know that there's a wedding. The first line I think that Brando says is, "You come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding," right? Like you're deeply offended by this, pretend or pretending to be, but you don't have any experience of the wedding at all until the door opens to usher out the undertaker and you hear the music from it, this convivial music from it. And suddenly you're in the world of the wedding itself, which is both wonderful with the nucleus, but fraying apart at the perimeter, perfectly sets up Sonny, the troubled son who's policing that perimeter in a sort of thug-like way against photographers and FBI guys. And you have this sense of a kind of very seductive, delusion of honor at the center of all this focused on the person of Don Corleone and it falling apart both spatially and temporally uh, at this wedding. Generationally, it's not going to hold up. And and the fates of Sonny and Michael, the two sons in um, the modern or contemporary world. And the second thing, I, the other big thing I noticed was just simply Diane Keaton is, is to, my, to me transcendent in this movie. So there's, a, there's a, a line that you can scarcely believe a human being could say with a straight face. You have to remember no one had ever heard it before. He made him an offer he couldn't refuse, says Michael to his, I think, to be fiance, girlfriend, played by Diane Keaton. Pacino, of course, is the young Pacino, totally unknown Pacino as Michael, describes to him a act of thuggery uh, that Don Corleone you know, committed in order to get his way. My father made him an offer he couldn't refuse. What was that? Luca Brazzi held a gun to his head, and my father assured him that either his brains or his signature would be on the contract. And the reaction of Diane Keaton, like, that you won't remember. That's not parodied anywhere. That's not in the culture already. And that reaction is just marvelous because her entire arc as a character is right there. Is she disgusted? Is she repelled? Is she seduced? Is she intrigued? Does she want that power? Michael quickly says, that's my family, Kay. That's not me. That's my family, Kay. It's not me. But what does Kay want? In that moment, I'm not so sure she wants it to just be the family. And uh, I, you're you're in. You're so in to the logic of this film. Allegra, any of this resonate with you? Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't want to make it sound like I was not, I didn't come away from the film loving and respecting it but actually you're getting at something that I wanted more of so speaking Mm. of Diane Keaton here is so transcendent I mean definitely her showing up I knew of course she would be in it but it was still very jarring to see her here because she seems so outside of this world which is the point right like she is this outsider that is being brought into the the family dynasty sort of reluctantly 
But she herself, I mean, I was reading um, an article where she herself said, you know, she was shocked that she was there. Why was she there? It's so weird that she's there. And Mm. being a Diane Keaton fan and knowing her work so well, it was definitely like, what is she doing here? And I wanted more (laughs) of her emotional journey and also the emotional journey of Don Corleone's wife. Um, That was someone that I wish we had seen more of. Like, I, I wanted more time with Kay and in relation to Michael. I felt like the... Mm-hmm. Film was so invested in setting up the Corleone dynasty, which I completely understand. But my partner that I watched the movie with, he had just read the book before we watched mm-hmm. the movie. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how in the book they did go a bit more into detail of Don Corleone's wife, who I don't even know the name of because they don't mm-hmm. say it. Um, and how she serves as a parallel to Kay and how... At the beginning, you know, she tells Kay, I go to church every day and pray for my husband's safety and for his soul. And then at the end of the book, Kay is doing the same thing. She's going to church every day as well to do to pray for Michael. And it's Mm. that sort of journey that I wish had been reflected in the film as well. Yeah, Allegra, we talked about that at my house after watching the movie last night, too, which is that, I mean, it is certainly of its time in that it is a dude's movie, right? I mean, even though a woman, Kay, Diane Keaton's character, is central to the movie and is in the very last shot, in a way the last shot is about her experience and her, right, being shut out of her husband's future as the door closes on her. But we don't know a lot about her interiority and we know far more about hers than any other woman's. It's quite striking and obviously was deliberate. I mean, this is not just simply some sexist oversight. It's clearly a choice, but I don't think that the Dawn's wife ever utters a single line, right? I mean, I guess we hear her singing into the mic at the wedding at the beginning, but you mainly glimpse her kind of in the background serving food. You know, she's the mama. She's kind of this, obviously, this sort of place of security for her children and that she's kept separate from her husband's wrongdoing, right? That's sort of clear from the context. But we know nothing until The Godfather Part Two about the the history of their marriage or where they came from. Talia Shire's character, the sister, I think Connie is probably the uh, the second most, the female character we spend the second most time with. And Talia Shire is fantastic in that role. But again, you know, she's a character who's being... Um, threatened by men, saved by men, you know, rescued by men, knocked up by men. And, uh, you know, it's not exactly a Bechdel test kind of movie, but it was 1972. So what are you going to do? I feel like we can't close out this segment, Steve, without talking a little about the production history of this movie, which I knew a lot about, but learned even more about in in listening to the commentary track that that Coppola recorded, which is on the new Blu-ray release and also on some earlier ones. Um, which is that he didn't want to make the movie at all. I mean, he he was not the first choice of Paramount to make the movie. He did it reluctantly as a pot boiler so he could do the more artistic personal projects he wanted to do, like the conversation, the next movie he made, which is far more personal. And to me, maybe a more special, to me, the love. conversation is higher in my personal pantheon. That's a movie that, that I Father. instantly loved. Yeah, I mean, that door. movie is just yeah. perfection. Yeah. It's, it's a masterpiece, um, but, but that's what he was interested in doing. And he really did regard The Godfather as a trashy novel that he was adapting <laughs> because he had to get his career moving. Then, of course, because he was Coppola, he became incredibly perfectionistic about doing it his way and, you know, spent a lot more money on it than the studio had wanted him to, was fighting with them the whole time. They didn't want to cast Brando because he was not Italian and he was too young. This and that. I mean, almost every choice that Coppola made, he had to fight desperately for. And so that's why listening to the commentary is so much fun, because he's pretty frank about that stuff. It's uh, we could go on forever. I mean, just the Pacino fight to get him in the movie, which was tough. He's totally unknown. Launches this 
on deathless career. And we, I mean, there's just so much to say, uh, and we're not going to get to it. But what we did get to made for a terrific segment. So thanks, guys. Let's uh, live with the fact that we got to move on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. Well, before we go any further, this is the moment in our podcast where typically we discuss business. Dana, I'm sure we've got some. What uh, What's up? Stephen, our only item of business today is to tell you about our Slate Plus segment. Last time we had Allegra on the show as a co-host, we talked about thematic aversions, as we called them, themes or subject matter in shows, movies, books that turn us off and rub us the wrong way and just make us not want to experience that thing. It was a fun conversation. And after that segment, a listener named Emily wrote to us wanting to know the reverse. What are thematic topics, subject matter of movies, films, books that make us want to read them and experience them? This is a great question, and since we have Allegra back on the show, as a bookend, we thought we would do this inverse version of her last Slate Plus topic. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you can hear that segment at the end of the show. And of course, if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can become one at slate.com slash culture plus. When you're a member, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, different one every week, and you will also hear members-only programming on other Slate shows like Slow Burn or The Political Gab Fest. And of course, when you're a member, you'll get unlimited access to all the great writing on Slate.com. You'll never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. Finally, you'll be supporting us, our work, and the work of all our wonderful colleagues. These memberships really matter for Slate. So please, if you can, sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Okay, Steve, what's next? All right. Well, Is It Cake? It's a very big hit on Netflix. It was number one when I watched it uh, last night. It was number two after the Bridgerton uh, season two. The mystery here, I suppose, is why. I mean, the best show in the format and the best baking show of all time are the same show. Why are you choosing to live in that shadow? I guess one idea is that British baking show is long in the tooth, is very, very English, maybe create something new, weird, slapdash, and very, very, very American. Well, mission accomplished. The premise here is inane. The host is weird and uh, dubious likability. I don't know. I think people could go either way on Mikey Day. The format, though, very stale in some sense. Yet, it's kind of fun. Like, people... God, it's hard to hate it. I don't know. It's <laughs> lathered in... It's all the things I typically ate. It's lathered in irony, self-deprecation. Um, the cake, by the way, is purely visual experience. All the competition elements of this competition render taste irrelevant. I mean, the thing could you know, just be inedible. It wouldn't really count against you. Uh, it raises this interesting metaphysical question, what counts as a cake anyway? Um, you know, I mean, I'm going to need my co-hosts to tell me what I think here. So let's start with a clip. All right. We're about to hear the host. He's Mikey Day. He uses this massive, comically, inaptly huge sword to cut into an object that looks very, very, very like a cheeseburger, but may or may not be cake. All right. I get to ask the best question ever. Is it cake? Sam? If this is cake, that means you didn't fool the judges and you won't be up for the win today. I'm nervous, Mikey. Yeah, just a little bit. Dun, 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 dun. 
Let's cake. Yes, it is. Oh, can I just say my my all time favorite segue is from The Godfather to Is It Cake? I know, I know, Allegra. I didn't mean to suggest. I mean, I really mean this sincerely. I did not mean to suggest you're a know nothing. You're a a brilliant critic and a valued contributor to the show. <laughs> it's just funny. Those, it's the blind spots are so anomalous because you have studied film quite seriously. So that's that's what I indicated by that. Nonetheless, let's ask the ovum. What did you make of this show? <laughs> yes, the duality of me. Um, yeah, it's funny because I saw this was on Netflix and I thought, oh, this is stupid. I'm a I like British baking shows. Well, you know, like I prefer my cooking shows of the the high art kind of the project runways and whatever. Um, but my friend was texting me up a storm saying this is the best show I've ever seen. It's so funny. It's so strange. She was narrating every episode for me while she was watching. it. I was like, I got to watch this show. And it, it truly was enjoyably stupid, um, which is not a word I use lightly. It was It's just, like, very stupid and, I think, knowingly stupid. Even the point of, like, these aren't really cake. It's just fondant. <laughs> like, you know, you, they're not really sculpting actual cakes. It's just, like, fondant is what they're using. It's kind of like edible play-doh barely edible who likes fondant anyway so it's not even about like the baking skill it's just about the aesthetic of these cakes and it's kind of fun to see like oh it literally does look like a bag and that's kind of what i'm enjoying about it of like wow they really went to absurd lengths to make these very impressive foods that are just going to be cut in half with a samurai sword and discarded immediately. Well, not immediately, though. I mean, (laughs) that's true. They do feed them to the judges. One of the possible joys, Dana, of this show is taking real, actual, living, carbon-based human beings with inner lives and forcing them through the sieve of this (laughs) fucking stupid premise and seeing what comes out the other side. And one of the key moments is, you know, these judges trying to discern whether something's real or fake is actually the, you know, there's a little array with, uh, you know, a bunch of real cheeseburgers and one cake disguised as a cheeseburger and on and on. And then they eat the cheeseburger cake afterwards is watching these real human beings with actual functioning, phenomenologically, you know, connected uh, taste buds to their brain pretend to like this cake you know and it's like they can't quite like I, I, that's fun to me it's like you don't like that cake i know you don't like that cake but you are contractually forced to choke it down and throw three <laughs> vacuous adjectives at it pretending that you do dana i mean the wire you know breaking bad good shows but they weren't cake <laughs> what'd you make of this I mean, I don't feel any need to watch beyond the the, the single episode of Is It Cake <laughs> that I've watched. <laughs> I think everything is right there laid out on the table, and maybe it should have just been a single standalone show. Uh, but I did appreciate that this show embraced and gloried in its own slapdash nature. You know, it reminded yeah. me in a strange way of the reality show Nailed It that we talked about mm-hmm. once, um, which is, you know, about people making these terrible crafted objects that they don't know how to make. This is kind of the opposite because the bakers are very good at that realistic trump loy aspect of their, mm-hmm. their cake oh, yeah. making. Even though I agree, Steve, they don't even try to make the inside look good. It's all just like funfetti and mm-hmm. vanilla and buttercream or whatever. Um, 
But unlike in Nailed It, where the stuff that's being made is sort of crappy, in this case, it's the show itself. <laughs> you know, the yeah. show itself is the poorly crafted object. And yeah. that's not going to last beyond a couple viewings, probably. But it is kind of fun to see something that is low stakes. I mean, a show like The British Baking Show or Project Runway that are actual shows about craft are far more interesting and have a longer shelf life, right? Mm-hmm. There's something that you could stick with for a whole season because there's stories that are emerging and you're watching people do something that they're great at. Here, you actually are watching people produce the project that they were great at making, but there's nothing about craft in there. We don't learn anything about what <laughs> right, they do nothing. in their regular lives. You know, I guess we know that they're all successful, realistic cake bakers, but there's much less of a sense of characters emerging, I think, over the course of a season. You know, it's more being set up as just this repeated joke of like, I have no idea if that's cake or not. And it yeah. really just, it comes out of that Twitter phenomenon, right? That right. Twitter thread that went viral of uh, hyper-realistic cakes being sliced and you gasp because you can't believe that that little pug dog lying on a mat or something is actually yeah. a cake pug um, but that's a pretty one note joke and it doesn't go a lot further right. than that if I were giving notes on this show to try to spin it out for more than one season I would say you need to have other challenges and other features in the show besides look at stuff and decide if it's cake or not in fact that should be the big payoff at the end yeah right because mm-hmm. it happens so often over the course of the show that that's sort of all there is to watch. I will say, Steve, though, to push back on the host is that I kind of like that host and I think he makes it work. (laughs) Something about his tone that's balanced in between snarkiness and sweetness and actually enjoying Mm, the silliness of the mm -hmm. show uh, is is kind of adorable. I think think without Mikey Day, it wouldn't be the show it is. Right. I I think that to the extent it works, it's because Is It Cake has this continuous echo in, is this really a TV show? And that definitely gets channeled through Mikey Day. I mean, he, I find him, I'm going to say, I don't like him or not like him, (laughs) but I'm intrigued into studying him in order to understand this life form. (laughs) Have you tried slicing him? (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Is he cake? Very good. I mean, he just has this vibe of like the hardened kind of, forgive me, like B-list comic, you know, and everything he says is designed to make you laugh. And yet, he finds nothing funny anymore. You know, there's like a kind of weird resistant, it's this irony, but a kind of like, it's playful on the surface, but there's something kind of knifing and hard underneath. I mean, I'm, I'm re- probably reading too much into it, I'm, but it's, it's, he just, he can't signal contempt because that would destroy the mood, but he's like, come on guys, really? I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it, I think it he's having fun. All... I disagree. I think he's Mikey Day is fun. enjoying himself. Yeah, I feel like he's more right. below it than above it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, nice. Sorry, Mikey. I will push back a little bit at what you were saying, Dana, about the show lacking in characters. I think, so I've seen, I've seen two episodes. <laughs> well, two and a half. Um, and I actually feel like the reason why I will go back and maybe watch episode three in full is that they do have, I mean, it is a competition, even though it's a competition for a very silly purpose. And honestly, not that much money as far as these shows go. It's like $50,000. But they have the same bakers carrying through and they're actually all very individual and diverse. There's a woman who is an immigrant who, you know, really is trying to make a name for herself and they all support each other when they, (laughs) one of the parts of the show is like, then the 
actual bakers have to see if it's cake. They are presented a bag of money, that two bags of money, one of which is real money and one of which is cake. And then the actual bakers have to um, choose which one is cake, which is like uh, kind of an unfair additional test on them. But when they fail to choose the right bag of money, all the other bakers are, you know, consoling them, saying you'll get it next time. And even though they're competing against each other, they're all very supportive of each other. And that was very cake-like sweet to me. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that was what really kept me watching beyond the, you know, first 10 minutes of saying, okay, yeah, is it a, is it cake? Is it a show? The answer is usually no to both questions. Ah, lovely, Allegra. Okay, we'll give you the last word there. It's uh, the show's Is It Cake? It's on Netflix. Uh, check it out. Love to find some uh, reaction to that show in our inboxes. So um, check it out. All right, moving on. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, well, Dua Lipa's hit song, Levitating, is catchy, it's peppy, it's beautifully produced uh, pop song, and possibly stolen, filched, plagiarized. Uh, There was one original claim, uh, came out a while ago, one week later, a similar claim filed against it on behalf of two other songs. It could be that it's a wildly original, wonderful pop song, or maybe it's a pastiche of the works of others. The courts will decide... Um, you know, could be that that's just how influence, illusion, random echoes out in the culture, out in the culture sphere work. Uh, it's going to take something called forensic musicology to begin to know. We're joined now by Jeremy Oros, associate professor of music theory at the University of Memphis, who's written, I regard, a, just the brilliant piece on Slate about what counts as musical plagiarism, taking this as a test case. Uh, Jeremy, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Excellent to have you, and congrats on the piece. Why don't we begin by listening back-to-back to to relevant snippets from uh, Levitating and Live Your Life by Article Sound System, a reggae band. Your life, oh, your life 
Jeremy, why, why don't we sort of start here? Is uh, you know, what Kia song is is in is entirely separate in some sense from the creative originality of it. It's often a convenience set by the vocal range of the singer. Uh, you know, you have to be pretty esoterically into music to think each key has its own distinctive kind of tonality to it, though some people do believe that. Nonetheless, the first thing I notice is they're in the same musical key. <laughs> I mean, in a way, that almost is in Dua Lipa's favor. You'd think you could just bump it up a half note or down and you know, full tone or whatever. But uh, there are striking similarities. How did this all strike you? Well, the first time I heard it, I was uh, honestly a little bit shocked that it was this similar when I first heard about this lawsuit. Not with the other one, of course. But yeah, I, I, I wonder what to make of the fact that they're in the same key. I think if this were really plagiarized from there, they could have just changed the key and mm. probably would have hidden the evidence by, as you said, bumping it up a half step. Absolutely. Yeah, in plain sight. So I think it would be, first of all, of course, we want to get to your verdict on the matter to the degree you have one. But I'd like to take at least a few baby steps getting there. Talk a little bit about what forensic musicology is. You know, going back as far as George Harrison losing a lawsuit over uh, one of his, you know, iconic uh, hit songs to Blurred Lines more recently, a five million uh, judgment against Thicke and uh, Farrell um, because they'd stolen something from Marvin Gaye. It can be done. How's it done? What's forensic musicology? Forensic musicology is simply the practice of a musical expert serving as an expert witness. And it doesn't work the same way each time. And here's how you know what a forensic musicologist is going to say. It depends what side they're on, right? So they'll find whatever evidence they can to make a case for whoever has hired them uh, to say, you know, if they're hired by the plaintiff, they'll say, yes, this clearly is borrowed from there. And if they're hired by the defendant, they'll come up with whatever evidence they can to say it's not. So it's not an exact science and it looks different in, in absolutely every case. Jeremy, I guess my first question on, on reading you on this was why this feels like something new, this this question of forensic musicology and the idea that music is is harder to copy than one would think because there are a limited set of patterns and genres that tend to echo each other. And yet when you look at the history of some of the famous musical plagiarism cases of the past, like the George Harrison one that Steve mentioned or, I th or the Robin Thicke case, the lawsuit won. The lawsuit was successful and the person had to pay up. And I'm wondering, just historically, over the last few decades of pop music, how our thinking about this has evolved? Yeah, I think certainly since sampling became a popular practice, um, I think this has become a much more common thing that we hear about because that's a more, uh, more, shall we say, obvious form of borrowing. But since there have been so many lawsuits about sampling, there have been a lot of lawsuits that are more speculative in nature about whether something is borrowed or not. Because when you sample, there's no doubt about it. But if there's something that's a re-recorded segment that maybe uses some of the same musical material, uh, you know, it's not quite as clear. But there have been more of those in recent years because there have been so many success stories. Uh, success, of course, defined as, hey, I can make some money by saying someone copied my song. Interesting. All right, let's get to the candy of this segment. Uh, walk us through precisely how you examined these two songs. There are others, of course, that it may or may not be copied from, but uh, this one may be in particular. And then uh, give us your verdict on, on, is there merit to this case? Based merely on musical similarity and the number of factors that are similar, that alone would suggest that there is some merit. 
because the chord progression is almost exactly the same. The, the last chord changes at a different time, but the first three chords are exactly the same. They are in the same key, uh, and there are melodic and rhythmic similarities at the same time. So that's the argument that would suggest that there is some merit. However, it's such a short-lived segment, mm. and nothing about it is distinctive. The chord progression is not especially unique. Uh, neither is the melodic rhythm, neither are the lyrical topics that are addressed that also are somewhat similar. Uh, so the combination of all of them put together suggests that maybe it could be a successful suit, but I just think that a three to four bar segment isn't quite enough to make a conclusive case that Dua Lipa had borrowed from Article Sound System. So my verdict is that this case uh, really should be thrown out. Uh, but if it goes to trial, it's it's really hard to predict what will happen. Jeremy, are other types of, of evidence allowed in these trials besides just playing the two music selections side by side or looking at the music, which, as you say, a jury could easily be, be fooled by in this case because, you know, they scan so much the same on the on the page if you know how to read music. But as you say yourself in your, in your piece, it would it would seem somewhat unlikely that someone in Dua Lipa's circle was even aware of the music by a little known reggae band from Florida with a small online presence. I mean, couldn't her lawyers simply argue, look, we don't know from you guys who are writing our song in, in isolation. And, you know, it's, it's simply unlikely that they would have known about it as a precedent. That could help. But here's the thing. You don't have to prove that someone did hear it. You just have to prove that someone could have heard it. So there isn't the smoking gun in this case, uh, so far as I'm aware. I don't believe there's any documentation between uh, any members of Dua Lipa's songwriting team where they said, hey, let's make this sound kind of like this this reggae record I just found. So there isn't any affirmative evidence that they did borrow, but the lack of affirmative evidence isn't necessarily something that's exonerating. So I was thinking when we were talking about other similar lawsuits in past years, of the occasions where the artist is able to be sort of vindicated when they are initially, you know, ruled as, as plagiarists, or they lose their initial lawsuit and then they can win on an appeal. So how does that work? Let's say Dua Lipa, you know, does lose this case. How would an appeal work? Well, um, appeals can work in, in, a, in a variety of ways, uh, but especially if they can make it clear that the jury was persuaded uh, in some way. And in most cases, the first ruling would be from a jury trial. And if there's if they can make some evidence that um, the jury was swayed by, say, an incomplete picture of it, if there was some misleading information, uh, then there could be, uh, you know, a panel of judges in, in, in an appellate court that could possibly overturn it, which was the case with uh, Gray versus Perry. It was judges that overturned it because the mm -hmm. judges, you know, were more experts in the matter and they were able to realize that, you know, there wasn't enough of a significant similarity that nothing was distinctive enough. And that's mm. something that the judges knew, but the jury didn't necessarily. Listening to the two songs back to back, maybe we could get uh, as a closer for the segment a little bit into the more uh, impressionistic or subjective aspects here, i.e. the Dua Lipa song totally slays. <laughs> the other one is kind of weirdly <laughs> yeah. inert and forgettable beyond a nice but as you say, somewhat recycled musical premise up front, uh, it, there's whatever else is true by legal standards, by aesthetic standards, there's an enormous amount of elan that is highly specific to this vocalist and uh, her co-writing skills, along with the two or three other people credited on writing the song. It 
it is artistically original and distinct from this supposed original. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, the songs are stylistically quite different from one another. You know, one, as we know, is is by a reggae band and the rest of the song. Uh, it, well, the rest of the song sounds a bit more like a reggae track. Um, and in this case, I mean, yeah, Dua Lipa songs more of a neo disco track uh, as a review on that album. And I, I know you mentioned Pastiche earlier, which, of course, is is not a crime. If it were, Bruno Mars would be out of money by now, yeah, right? On right, all these exactly. other artists who intentionally write retro sounding music, um, which Dua Lipa, of course, does. But yes, if we're looking at the the subjective stylistic profile, these songs have very little in common. Jeremy, another piece of evidence that seems like it might go against Dua Lipa's side in this case is that only three days after this suit, she was sued for plagiarizing another song. And I wonder if you could talk about that and, I mean, whether how these two things or whether these two things should be considered as two separate cases or if they indicate a pattern. They certainly could indicate a pattern. And if I thought that either of these lawsuits were... Uh, you know, were, were valid, which which I really don't, uh, I think that would be kind of damning, the fact that there are two. Uh, since neither seems that legitimate to me, uh, that almost makes the second lawsuit seem more frivolous. I wonder, I mean, how long were they, how long before they filed the lawsuit were they preparing it? Probably more than three days, but it's not inconceivable that when the first lawsuit was filed, they said, hey, you know, let's let's get in on this too. Yeah, I mean, I I see this as, <laughs> Obviously, I understand, you know, if, if you do feel as though you have a legitimate case and you want to assert that and obviously have that bear out in the court of law, I completely, you know, sympathize with that as a creative. But I also see the cynical uh, aspect to these cases of no matter what happens, like we all are talking about these bands we had never heard of. I'm sure they are actually getting streaming bumps that they never would have gotten. Do you feel as though that is as much of an influence in these lawsuits as the actual creative merit of it? Just the fact that it's a really good way to get publicity. That's a great question. I think with the article sound system case, yes, absolutely. No one knew who they were. Uh, and now we all do. And I've streamed their songs now, and that's not something I ever would have done before. So, yeah, I mean, in a sense, they've already won. They've already profited from this. The, the writers of Wiggle and Giggle, though, Brown and Linzer, I don't really see what they have to gain from this. <laughs> Just to frame what Wiggle and Giggle is, it's the second song that uh, Dua Lipa has been sued for allegedly plagiarizing. The songwriters Russell Brown and Sandy Linzer allege that the song sounds like one that they wrote in 1979. I said all this just so that I could say the title, Wiggle and Giggle All Night. I was walking down the street when I saw the dancing soldier boy winkle winkle winking at me. He said I'd like to make a date. I said so sorry but his lady said, what's, what's the matter, matter baby? Ain't you free? Ain't you free? Free to be the love of my life. He said I love the way you wiggle and I love the way you giggle and I'd love to give you just a little kiss on your lips. He was such a delight. So we all right. Well, I could wiggle and giggle all night talking about this uh, all day and all night, but I think we do have to go. Jeremy, great, uh, great segment. Um, and please come back soon. This is an evergreen topic. Yeah, absolutely. Next time there's a next time there's a case like this, just you know where to find me. So that signal <laughs> sooner than later, I'm sure. All right. Well, Jeremy Oros is a professor of music theory at the University of Memphis. His piece, Dua Lipa's Levitating plagiarism lawsuit could change music forever it's up on slate.com now check it out 
I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FD Weekend wherever you listen. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you, uh, what do you got? Steve, I actually have a video file endorsement, which is not typical for me. I'm not usually one of those people, although I like my physical media. Not somebody who's very fussed about what exact version of something I'm watching. And is it a 4K restoration? My TV setup is so not new and nice that wouldn't probably really matter on the screen anyway. But because we talked about The Godfather today, I was going to note that I watched The Godfather not in the new restoration that was just presented for the 50th anniversary, but in something called the Coppola restoration. And that's because I happened to be tweeting about the fact that we were doing The Godfather and saying, hmm, is it worth it to buy this new Blu-ray that's come out? Is it some fantastic, does it have amazing features? Does it have some fantastic new look? And several different video files of my acquaintance, including Slate's own Fred Kaplan, got on Twitter to say, do not get the new version. Go back and get something called the Coppola Restoration. I believe it's from 2008. And it was Coppola and Gordon Willis, the cinematographer, sitting down and saying, you know, here's how we wanted the movie to look. This is the best version of it that we can come up with. I'm sure that other video files will come in and say, here's why the new one is even better. But I bought this one in part because, you know, of this of this recommendation of the quality of the image, also because it has great extras, including that Coppola commentary track that I talked about, and also because it's a much, much better deal for basically twice as much of the price as the the one new movie. You can get all three of The Godfathers. Not that I'll be watching part three very often, probably, because I am not one of those who's trying to retcon that into being a good movie. I still think it's bad. But I'm very happy to have the trilogy with all these nice extras on Blu-ray. And I just wanted to let people know, if you are hesitating over which one to get, I recommend The Coppola Restoration. Better deal, better looking movie. That is news you can use right there. That's a terrific endorsement. Allegra, what do you have? Um, well, as our resident Ovum, I'm going to, rec- <laughs> I'm going to recommend another uh, ovum in her field. I recently discovered a a new artist named Leanna Firestone, who, per her own life story, she, during the pandemic, like all of us, was bored, started making TikToks about anime, so already I'm sold, and then started posting little snippets of songs she was writing. People love them. Now she has an album, just came out a month or two ago, and Spotify's algorithm just happened to feed it to me, and I ate it up. I've been eating up the album, eating up every single thing Leanna's doing. She makes, you know, I mean, we call it like sad girl indie rock music, which, you know, I think that's, it's valid. That's what it is. She's being sad. (laughs) She's a girl. It's indie rock. And I continue to relate to that, even though my favorite song on there, it's called Google Translate, and it's completely about how she would write messages to her crush using Google Translate in high school when she was 16. And I'm like, oh, mood, feel it. (laughs) When you're tired and delirious at almost 2 a.m., you type sentences into Google Translate and then you send them to me. Je pense que Leah est très jolie. I don't think you know just how much it means to me to watch you try to call me pretty in a language I know that you can't speak. 
Oh, I feel this. I remember messaging boys, you know, in Google Translate, hoping they don't know what te amo means. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, so she just really is uh, speaking to my my inner teen. She herself is like 20 now, um, so a little bit older, too. But I I keep thinking about, man, the, the songs I relate to the most are the ones about being 16. Have I grown up since then? Arguably but also arguably not. Um, but, you know, regardless of how old you are and how much you relate to the idea of messaging people in different languages that they don't understand, it's just good music, funny, smart writing, and I am excited to see where she goes from here. Steve, you love an indie sad girl. That sounds right yeah, up your alley. Steve, check her out. It is so up my alley. Say her name again. Leanna Firestone. Her album is called Forward Slash. I am typing that into Spotify right now. Uh, you had me at uh, emo or mood or whatever, <laughs> whatever it was, but you <laughs> had me at it right mood. away. <laughs> uh, marvelous. Okay, I am. Uh, I, I could. I just want to say I could do a related endorsement, which is I did not know that Christian Lee Hudson was the co-writer on a lot, a lot of Phoebe Bridgers' songs, that he's a real creative partner with her. I've come to know his music independently, and I cannot tell you how much I love it. I mean, anyway, but that's not my endorsement. So I, it will be, I'm going to get deeper into him and then talk about him on another show. But I found something really out of the way. I can't remember through some weird Borgesian, you know, Google spree. Um, I came up with this guy named Julius Aglinskas, A-G-L-I-N-S-K-A-S, and his album Daydreamer, which he did with an avant-garde musical collective called, I believe, Apartment, no, Apartment House. Uh, And um, there's this, look, clearly I like dominantly two forms of, of music, right? There's the, what Allegra just, just described, you know, t- moody, emo, um, my inner 16-year-old, um, you know, is being sung directly to, uh, very often Scandi, uh, lead vocalist is f- so often female in a sing-song voice. If it's in French, you know, I'm putty in, in your hands forever. But I also like uh, wordless instrumental music, um, often featuring piano, very spare. I mean, it derived from Eric Satie um, and maybe even a tiny bit from Bill Evans, so not totally amelodic. And uh, that's what he's doing. It's just wonderful. This album, Daydreamer, it's on Spotify. Check it out. I I don't mean to insult this man at all or people who make this kind of music. You can put it on and work to it. Um, It's also worth listening to with with attentive, you know, undivided care, right? Um, And attention. But you can do both. I really like it. I'd like to point listeners to it. Um, Dana, I know you'd like it. Allegra, I suspect you would too. So check it out uh, and we'll link to it. Allegra, 
really good show. Really good show. It was awesome to have you back. And that really was not a backhanded compliment. I know. I, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm serious. I'm dead serious. It oh. could come off as incredibly insulting and belittling. And it really was not. No, I, I say much worse things about myself. So <laughs> I was good. I, I thought you were going to say about me, which would be fine, too. But, uh, <laughs> she embraces her was... ovum status. I say much worse things about you. <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> there you go. Oh, oh we're so good. Oh, Dana. <laughs> I know you talk shit about me. It's cool. It's cool. We're cool. We're, we're cool. Uh, uh, great show. That was really fun. Yes. Great conversation. Thanks for making us do The Godfather. It was your idea and it was a good one. Yeah, it was fun. Good. Excellent. Okay. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us. We love it when you do at culturefest at slate.com. We'll try to get back to you in a timely fashion. You can nudge us if we don't. Uh, the intro music to our show is by the wonderful composer Nicholas Patel. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. For Dana Stevens and Allegra Frank, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll, we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.